Before we start the show, if you want more stock talking, check out my newsletter at tinyletter.com slash bbrostoff or visit postcoronastocks.com. You can find me on Twitter at at BMB21. Now, on to the show. Welcome to Stock Talking, an exploration of financial markets in the context of the post-corona world. COVID-19 has changed the way we value equity, debt, and business as a whole. My goal is to find great companies who can thrive in the new normal. I can't wait to get started. All right, welcome to another episode of Stock Talking. Back again, the impervious, to do another market update and talk all things stocks. How you doing, buddy? Long time no chat. Uh, a lot of things going on in the world of impervious. Uh, did I miss anything? Anything happened the last couple of months? I, I mean, I think we last talked in March, but it has been a pretty crazy month since then. A lot of macro news. Uh, market has kept chugging along. I think we even had a mini drawdown uh, in the middle of that. But we are at all time highs again. So I think forty one eighty on the S and P, uh, pretty good, pretty good number. A lot of people think that that could be a top, but of course we've been hearing that for over a year. Uh, so interested to hear your thoughts. So what's going on in the market right now? Yeah, it, it almost feels like we just kind of slipped walk through the last last month after all the excitement with the short squeezes in January and then all the 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 fear about rates turning up back in February and March. Ever since that huge breakout in the SPX on you know the beginning of the month, right around April Fool's Day, uh, it's just been a constant melt higher uh, for the SPX. You know, something like a basically almost three weeks in a row of just green days, not even a viable pullback for the most part, except for last Thursday on news that uh, Joe Biden was planning to institute a ridiculous capital gains tax, which was instantly walked back. And we find ourselves at a new all-time high Friday. But uh, despite that all-time high and just the the melt-up going on in the SPX, uh, the NASDAQ, while sitting just below its all-time high, has failed to make a new all-time high in the last couple months. Uh, or excuse me, last couple of weeks. Uh, and the Russell, the small caps, still really lagging despite being sort of the, the leader of that post-election uh, run at the end of last year and the beginning of this year. So despite you know the tape saying that there's uh, a lot of optimism out there, a lot of buying, for, for a lot of reasons, it doesn't exactly feel like business as usual. So you know there seems to still be sort of this incongruence between you know, the price here, not even being able to go a couple of weeks without setting a new all-time high here. And the fact that uh, a lot of the leaders that, you know, had really been driving the market, um, tech, for example, and some of these small caps, you know, haven't been able to get off the mat in, in a way one would expect with, you know, such, such breadth here and, um, you know, continuing to go higher and higher. So, you know, as I've sort of been mentioning on every single podcast, every time we keep going higher, I think there is new cause for concern, you know, not the least of which being, you know, one, uh, we can look at some some recent events, uh, you know, our buddy Bill Huang, the Huang Dang Doodle, uh, blowing up his, his account with <laughs> prices at near all time high and still getting somehow margin called and having his, his 10 billion in holdings, which higher with leverage, just absolutely liquidated. Um, you know, setting sort of the the all time best YOLO bet that blew up in someone's face. So, you know, there's structural issues lying underneath uh, all of this bullish price action. 
Um, so I think there is plenty of cause for concern. But, you know, that that said, you buying these prices, Ben? Well, I'll answer that question in just a sec. But let me ask you first, you know, you say, you know, NASDAQ kind of has traded flat. I don't think it's at all time highs. Uh, small caps, their run has been interrupted. Yet somehow the S&P is still at all time highs. So what's driving the S&P higher right now? Well, one of the the trades that's sort of been winning and potentially, you know, reaching the the end of its line here is that that reflation and the reopening trade. And as we talked about late 2020 with NASDAQ or with the the vaccines rolling out uh, and a a lot more demand, you know, especially in the energy space and um, some really strong consumer numbers coming out of late. You know, we have seen some of those laggards uh, in in both the energy space, you know, with crude. Uh, making a run to 60 bucks a lot faster than I think anyone would have really even thought uh, in this this near sort of universal expectation of of inflation has been driving that. So, you know, your favorite sector value has has really been showing some strength to the point where, you know, even the value trade uh, or at least a lot of the names that had been considered value for looking at energy, we're looking at banks you know, have, have been on such a run that now we could even say maybe value is overpriced. So what's what we've seen is, you know, with a lot of the very overpriced high multiple uh, sectors, tech in particular, really kind of cooling off and just consolidating or with even some of the growth names really just getting eviscerated back in, in February and haven't been able to uh, retrace a significant amount of of uh, that price action coming close to all time highs. You know, I think it has been that that value space. So now it looks like just about every sector in the market is is overpriced, even if the more overpriced ones haven't continued to get even even more overpriced there. So I think that uh, you've you've probably done well with some of those uh, stocks that looked pretty hideous last summer, but uh, are doing pretty well. But you know that does again raise the question: what what do you even buy at this point? Uh, if the the hyper rotation that we see, you know, from growth to value, from you know tech to any number of different sectors, is sort of hit every every single part of the market. You know, we're running out of laggards to really pull things up. And you know, I think what uh, really held uh, tech down for the better part of February and March, March had been rising rates based on uh, ex- expectations of inflation and also the market pricing in uh, some rate hikes from the Fed. Well, after rates peaked around the 175 handle, you know, we've seen them back back off pretty significantly in April, but have still found support above that key, you know, 1.5 handle where the yield on a 10-year treasury is basically the same as what you can get from the SPX without the volatility there. And we've also seen VIX continue to get just sort of crushed, finally closing that post-COVID uh, gap from that that crazy run in the first you know uh, spike of, of volatility last last February and March. So just about everything that that could be crushed or is sort of a, a headwind for um, you know, price moving up in several areas basically has been or is reaching an inflection point and can also point at the dollar, you know, which peaked right around the 93.43 handle on the DXY back in March and has con- continued a consistent mark down or march down, closing below the 91 handle Friday. So if, if the dollar continues lower, if rates continue lower, then we can expect the same trend. But 
Um, at least in 2021, you know, these are sort of counter trend moves with the dollar basically having a, a strong march upward from January 1st and rates having that strong move upward from January 1st. So the question is, which is the real trend, the, the large, you know, multi-year trend of both of those coming down or the most recent sort of uh, intra-year trend of, of a potential dollar squeeze and rates, you know, continuing to, to move up. So I think a lot of, you know, where, where we see strength will depend on sort of those two key metrics. And also if, if volatility and VIX can continue to get crushed, but, uh, I think they are sitting at a point where, you know, we could see some type of reversal or pivot here. And it's still hard to say what the true trend or direction is in either of those, but I think that will really set the tone for uh, this upcoming quarter here and going into the summer where I think seasonally April has been great for the market, but we are heading into some some months that have been seasonally pretty weak. So I, I wouldn't expect the same trades to continue working that had been working for the last couple of months to be the same moving forward. So, you know, that that having been said, you know, where, where do you see some value or opportunity coming up here, Ben? Yeah, all good points. And I acknowledge there is a ton of uncertainty. You know, VIX, I think, has been depressed and probably too low for, for quite some time. And the, the rate story also, I think, is uncertainty as well. That said, like, you know, you asked, am I a buyer at these levels? Where do I see it going? I am still buying value. I'm still buying names I like that I think have good stories and low expectations and should benefit from reopening, as well as just good core high return on equity, return on invested capital businesses. I mean, ultimately, I see myself, and I'm sure a lot of people see it, but say this as an investor who just tries to find compounders um, that have big total addressable markets and can continue using the same playbook for years. I mean, my most recent long post on stock talking was on Wingstop which to me is a good example of really good unit economics. Um, people love the product. They're benefiting from delivery. Margins are getting higher. They're opening more stores. Uh, really good franchise model, but everybody should check that out. But that, that's a good example to me of like, I'm very happy to continue putting money in that, especially as reopening starts to become a little bit more aggressive, um, which is actually what I want to talk about is a trend that may seem like a micro trend, but I actually think reopening um, the strength of the consumer could be, you know, a three to five year bull story. And the reason I say that is, is because the whole story people are trying to, to spin on the roaring 20s, I actually think is not that far from what could happen. And we're already starting to see it. I mean, Bank of America reports consumer spending that they see on debited credit cards there. It's already surpassing 2019 levels um, in a lot of areas, even in the hotel sector, which you would think is pretty bit, beat up. Uh, mid-scale and economy hotels are actually above 2019 just tell a little anecdote, you know, I was in the Cape uh, this last weekend, went to Martha's Vineyard. I was in Falmouth for a bit. So like a lot of vacation areas and I mean, restaurants are packed. Our Uber driver said that hotels are booked for the entire summer. Um, I later saw a Bloomberg article that pretty much said the, the same thing. Um, so, I mean, that that's immensely positive to throw some more anecdata out there. Um, everybody who listens to this podcast knows that I have a, a deep obsession with movies coming back and I'm invested uh, for that to be true. So, I mean, movies continue to do pretty spectacular on reopening. So uh, Godzilla versus Kong, which I also saw when I was uh, in the KFP, I highly recommend going out and see it. I think it's a good flick. But that was the best movie that's, that's come out for, uh, since the pandemic. So, you know, did 80 million domestic, 400 million global. That was on a budget of 155 million. So the economics of, of movies are working. Um, to me, this is really important because this pretty much debunks the thesis that streaming has overtaken uh, theaters in, in terms of good unit economics. Uh, still clearly a lot of value to movies. And then this most recent weekend, 
uh, Mortal Kombat came out and then Demon Slayer, which was an anime film um, that did really well in Japan, uh, opened up in the US. So both of those, I think the high end of expectations had 15 million at the box office. It's only, you know, this was as of Sunday morning. So um, Mortal Kombat's done 22 and a half million, so smashed expectations and then Demon Slayer's at 19. So just another weekend of spectacular box office results. Um, why is this happening? I mean, first of all, I think expectations were a bit too draconian. I think people underrated the consumer. But I think second of all, like the savings rate is at you know multi-year highs. I think multi-decade highs. This is in part because we gave everyone fourteen hundred dollars stimulus checks. But I think people also um, were, were worried about COVID and worried it could have a lingering impact. So they did save a significant amount of money. And also, you like if you can't go outside, it's like you can't really spend it. So you have a consumer that's flush with cash. You have people who are really happy. Um, and optimistic about the future. It, that's showing in the manufacturing index. That's showing in people spending on marketing and ad spend. And another thing I did want to mention too is, you know, Google earnings are coming up this week. I see a ton of value in Fang. I always do. So Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google. On the Google story, I, I recommend everybody read. Um, you, I believe his name is Yaron uh, Neymark. He's the PM for One Main Capital. Um, he was just on another podcast I listened to with Andrew Walker. So I recommend everybody subscribe to that. But his last quarterly letter is talking about Google. So companies are, are finally starting to bump up ad spends because uh, there's no more COVID overhang or there's not as much uncertainty as there once was. Um, Google, I think Xcash is like 21 times earnings now and seeing their core business definitely strengthen. They've done three times as many buybacks. So buybacks have increased from 10 billion to 30 billion over the course of the last four years. Um, you know, obviously they have a, a bunch of capex tied up in these other bets, which are moonshots. But if one lands, that's just gravy. Um, so great core business that trades at a fair valuation that I'm totally happy to just hold forever. Um, so that's where I'm seeing value. You know, like great business models that trade reasonably. Um, and of course, like in a drawdown, I'm not saying they won't get hurt. But I'll just buy more in, in that case. So I'm a buyer of great companies I like who I think will benefit from a more confident consumer. Uh, more confident, small to medium-sized businesses and even enterprises. Um, I just think COVID going away is going to continue to have uh, multi-year benefits. Um, I, I think people won't take for granted what happened over the last year. And I think we're going to see a lot of consumer spending happen as a result. So I, I'm pretty bold up, as you can tell, but that's pretty much me every episode. And, you know, I think there is a lot of people that would agree with you almost to the point where I feel like sort of the inflation or reflation trade is and has been too crowded for some time. I mean, it really got kicked off in earnest last November when we got news of the emergency use authorization for vaccines. And I think there was finally a roadmap to to sort of reopening. And so that trade has been, you know, going on for at least half a year now. I don't think there's really anyone waiting for for reopening. So in a lot of ways, it's it's quite mature, you know, looking at a lot of those industries, whether it's, you know, brick and mortar retail or the transports, you know, have really been on quite a run. And so at this point, I feel like we have priced in, you know, not just reopening, but a, a resounding sort of boom coming out of COVID. And I've heard so many people make that comparison to the roaring tw 20s, but there's such a major difference between now and then. I mean, the 20s, you're coming off of World War I uh, and a, a major event that basically forced you know, a lot of investiture into manufacturing and really boost productivity. And really what we got out of 2020 is a huge injection of cash and stimulus. But I, I can't say that that was actually really increasing productivity. You had a lot of 
dollars just ending up in the pockets of you know either consumers, whether that's through the stimulus helicopter money or unemployment benefits or in the pockets of corporations uh, through all of the Fed bond buying. And so a lot of that's raised equity prices, but can we say this has increased productivity? And I think there's a lot to point at the fact that it hasn't. I mean, look no further than all of the supply chain issues uh, most notably the semiconductor space, boots on the ground take here. Um, the supply constraints there are the dominant sort of factor in that particular uh, industry. So for the first time in a long time, we're moving from a condition where uh, everything is sort of dominated by demand side economics and stimulating sort of the demand from the consumer. But since we've been so unproductive with a lot of that money that's entered the economy, uh, we find that while the demand is there, the ability to supply that demand in production has basically been kneecapped by by the shutdowns with COVID and sort of you know ongoing international challenges to travel and commerce. So I th I feel like there is a lot more risk to that story than than people are willing to to admit. In that it's not about having dollars out there for consumers to spend. It's about the fact that you know are there enough products and services for consumers to actually spend it on and for you know that to get the the economy going in a way that that would actually resemble inflation so there's been plenty about this this inflation versus deflation debate and it seems like just about everyone is on the side of inflation obviously printing money there's an increase in the money supply that should obviously be inflation uh but the the rebuttal to that is quite simply you know we've seen all of this before look no further than japan and boj you know buying up bonds and etfs for 30 years and despite you know doing all these programs to varying different degrees and increasing amounts they've never actually created true inflation so at this point you know despite sort of the the assumption that this this mechanical relationship between money printing and inflation is is a foregone conclusion uh, there's still a lot to be proved on the inflation side in terms of actually seeing this all manifest in terms of, you know, more production, more goods and services being available and thus creating more, you know, money and commerce. So I, I understand the bullishness and see the narrative there. However, I still think there's a lot to be proven. And considering how much has been priced in, expectations are sky high. We're basically walking a tightrope here in terms of we're not just looking at a recovery. And sure, numbers look great when you're comparing to the low, uh, the low base effects of you know GDP getting crushed last year and inflation getting crushed last year. So uh, the the top line numbers will look good, but we need to way outpace sort of that trend line set prior to to COVID, and that's really what's being priced in. And even with you know the really good consumer reporting coming up we need several more quarters of you know continued growth both in consumer spending statistics uh decreases in uh, new unemployment claims and also just a an overall increase in production and productivity because at least at this point you know we are continuing to see that employment is very difficult with all this helicopter money out there it's tough for you know a lot of the labor and you know lower value service jobs get filled when it's so much more lucrative to just do nothing sit at home and make the same amount of money so we have a lot of dollars entering the economy and not much production and i don't think there is a, a great answer or a solution for that so you know a top line the numbers look good but i think the the underlying actual economic strength or strength of the economy is very very overstated by the numbers that are being reported. Yeah, I'll, I'll acknowledge that. I think uh, you have some interesting points too on inflation versus deflation. Like 
what, whenever I hear there's a consensus view or start reading everybody with the same opinion, it, uh, it makes me want to take the other side of the trade or hear what the contrarians think. If people are interested in some good deflation takes, highly recommend reading or listening to Lacey Hunt, uh, who manages some mutual funds and has been a, a bunch of podcasts recently. But he is basically, to me, the, the poster boy for we are in a very long-term deflation cycle. And as governments increase their debt to GDP ratio, uh, deflation is usually the result and brings up some of the points you mentioned with uh, the Bank of Japan and other countries with similar cycles. So I wouldn't, I'd be skeptical that inflation is a, a foregone conclusion. That said, like I saw in your notes, you have some interesting stuff on uh, the dollar index and also gold. Um, I think there are opportunities in both of those. So, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on both of them. Yeah. And to answer my question to you in terms of, you know, what what can you buy at this point in, in a market where value is is very hard to find, even in what are traditionally considered the value sectors? I think you look no further than, you know, the insane runs for a number of commodities, particularly lumber recently with a significant amount of demand from home builders. And then, you know, as I discussed earlier, just a very constrained supply chain there uh, for lumber. So it is kind of amazing to think that gold has been basically underperforming pretty much every single other commodity uh, since that huge breakout last summer. So I think a great way to hedge this inflation expectation uh, is with gold here, you know, with with so many other commodities, whether it be you know lumber or oil and energy in general, you know, having really uh, run up quite a bit this year, gold has been by far sort of the most frustrating asset class, I would say, especially amongst uh, commodities over the last year. But we're finally in a situation where that weird. Bitcoin gold rotation seems to be uh, having played its course, finally seeing a little bit of weakness in, in Bitcoin, not calling for it to go to zero. But I think uh, the the issues with leverage and margin debt uh, are, are particularly strong with Bitcoin. Any pullback can in instantly turn into a 10% drawdown uh, yep. just based on all that forced liquidation. So um, with that that major run in Bitcoin potentially you know, reaching its the end of the line here and so many other commodities really just banging. I feel like there's a great chance for gold to finally, you know, at the very least, just return to to the upward move that would be expected. And the, the sad thing is that gold bugs have been right about so many different things in terms of policy, in terms of, you know, macroeconomic trends. And yet they still, you know, continue to lose money on on gold, which is is pretty tragic. And, and the Peter Schiff's of the world are are defending it till they're blue in the face. But um, after seeing it basically uh, find itself a, a nice bottom around that 1700 handle, we've seen a nice couple of weeks from gold and a couple of weeks that we haven't seen uh, in some time, basically since that breakout last summer. So in particular, you know, the gold tracks uh, real rates, and that's sort of been the dominant sort of defining trade. Well, if you think that the Fed is not going to raise rates, not step in to do anything to slow down uh, inflation, then that does nothing but create a massive, massive tailwind for gold, and especially at uh, a price that's relatively depressed to compared to to other commodities. But that said, I, gold miners are really the the standout to me in where I'm trying to get along with with any kind of size in a way that I'm not trying to elsewhere. Uh, the GDX relative to the gold chart is finally breaking out. So we are seeing gold miners lead, but look no further than the fact that most gold miners are trading at less than 10x multiples. 
And yet, you know, they are in a business where it's basically a leverage play in gold, something I've talked about before. You know, their costs are relatively fixed, but as the spot price of that commodity comes up, their profit margins increase. So there's a lot to see there, you know, low, cheap prices. There's a great sort of narrative for gold. The risk reward profile is good, you know, with it basically settling at more or less the same level it was prior to that breakout last summer. So even just retracing a, a you know, pretty sizable amount of that breakout, you know, would lead to a, a strong move in a lot of these names. So we're also seeing a lot of insider bonds, in particular, Gold, ticker G-O-L-D, uh, made headlines last summer when uh, our buddy Margaritaville Buffett um, took a, a position there. But, you know, later um, we found out that they drastically reduced the size of that position. But um, there's been some significant insider buys. And I love Barrick Gold, not just for being a gold miner, but they also have exposure to other key metals and minerals. So bigger than just gold and gold miners, I think the real big play moving forward um, whether you're looking at an inflation trade or just sort of considering the current economic uh, dynamic is in the, the pick and shovel type plays. So I love any of the inputs into um, a lot of whether these are ESG type technologies or green, green tech type, type stuff. Um, but the raw materials are going to have such immense demand and with such constraint on a lot of the supply, uh, we're only going to see prices go up in you know whether it's copper or whether it's any number of precious metals or rare earth minerals so i love myself as much barrett gold as i can get i've taken large positions as well in vale freeport mcmoran that's fcx and also another company i really like at this price is a lithium of america's corp uh, which has claims on what will be the largest lithium mine in North America. And based on sort of the lead time it takes to get something like that online, you know, will be in that position having the largest mine in North America for several years. So considering that's probably a very strategic uh, supply to have there with, you know, the demand for lithium and batteries and all these initiatives to get EVs on the road. Um, there is tremendous upside there in, in those raw inputs that I don't quite see in a lot of the big, you know, names for whether they be charging companies or EV companies um, that have been flying high, but are, are relatively beaten down. Um, so real quick, we did get a question from listener Brian uh, a couple couple weeks ago about what we thought about green energy ETFs like PDB and PDW. Well, at the time, you know, I felt like both were quite overpriced um, with a lot of those names like Plug Power, Blink and or Blink Charging, and QuantumScape, uh, which represent a significant weight of both those portfolios having run up significantly. Those names have been absolutely beaten down the last two months, trading well under fifty percent of their all time highs. So maybe this is a good buying opportunity on those names, but still, I'm not buying buying sort of the profitability of the business, you know, there is potential for vaporware and a lot of, you know, a lot to prove for those names to be viable businesses. However, the, the materials and inputs to their products, um, whether it's, you know, those companies that are building them or any of the other names out there, the Panasonics of the world, building batteries, the, the demand for those materials will be immense. So I'd rather bet on the materials and the miners rather than trying to pick a winner in the charging or EV space, because we know it's going to be a part of the future, but there's just an intense, intense competition um, for those, those end products. And only so many companies do have access to the, the minerals and those companies will ultimately be the winners. So I like myself some gold. I like myself anyone that digs stuff out of the ground. I'm with you. I like a solid business model that has fixed costs and some operational leverage, uh, trades under 10 times earnings. So I, I'm also bold up on the miners and gold in general. I, I did want to circle back to comments you made on the crypto lending space because 
I wanted to use it as an opportunity to just rip on, on what's going on there. So I, I have no view on crypto prices per se. I mean, I could see it going either direction. Ultimately, I've been thinking about this recently. It's like, this to me is no different if somebody was like, oh, I have a view on the Euro uh, USD exchange rate. Like I, you know, I have a view on the Swiss franc. I've never traded uh, like macro assets or commodities. You know, my background is in looking at equities, figuring out cash flows, trying to determine a price. So th- that's where I stand on on the Bitcoin price and um, all other coins. However, on the lending stuff, you know, I, I do have views because I think I have a good idea of how leverage works. And, and, you know, I wouldn't even call it mathematics. This is just very basic arithmetic. So, I mean, what's happening in the crypto lending space for anyone who hasn't been paying attention is I think you have a bunch of companies trying to compete with Coinbase. Um, that basically are trying to get people to deposit assets by offering extremely lucrative deals. And BlockFi, to me, is the poster boy for this. Uh, there have been some good articles on it. I think Packy McCormick has a good one. Andrew Walker has a good one. So check those out. But basically, like you look at BlockFi, they're offering people uh, 8% interest to simply hold your assets in you know, what they, they say is risk-free. So it's some stable coin they'll put you in by default. But how they're actually doing it <laughs> is insane. Like basically, you know, you, you can't, um, you can't give people 8% unless you're making more than 8%, right? This is like rule number one of a bank. This is why banks only pay you 50, 60 basis points um, for a savings account. It's because they can't go and lend it at much more than that. Um, and that's why, they, depending on what interest rates do, they have to change uh, what they can pay you for your deposits. So the reason that uh, BlockFi is able to do this 8% right now um, is there are hedge funds who are willing to pay 15% uh, to borrow Bitcoin. And that's because... The Bitcoin futures curve right now um, is in deep contango. So meaning like future months are, are much higher than the current $50,000 price, um, which is ex- insane, right? Because it's like it's a digital asset. It's not like there are any prices to hold it. Um, that's why you might often see like oil or other commodities um, in contango or backwardation. You know, it depends on the storage costs and like the view of the commodity. Um, however, like basically these hedge funds are doing this arbitrage trade where they can um sell Bitcoin in the present and buy it in the future or vice versa. Uh, they're willing to pay 15% to do this arbitrage. Um, so basically, you know, they lend to the hedge funds at 15. Uh, they pay you 8%. They make seven. Like that trade to me seems unbelievable. That has to get arbed out over time. That's one thing that deeply concerns me. Um, so you have all these assets probably coming into BlockFi for a business model that's not sustainable. The, the other thing I'm deeply concerned about is like, I, I think Coinbase is also doing this and probably some other companies um, you can now like loan, you can get a, a margin loan on um, uh, Bitcoin and some other coins, I think, as well at like a 50% LTV. So if you have like 10 grand of Bitcoin, you can borrow five grand um, of fiat. And like considering how volatile Bitcoin is, I, I mean, I don't think a 50% drawdown is not out of the question at all. Like it was at, you know, $25,000 a couple months ago. Um, so, you know, if a drawdown like that happens, there's a, a bunch of people who are going to get margin called and be four sellers of, of Bitcoin. Um, and again, like this is to say nothing about the protocol or like how Bitcoin works. I think all of that's well and good. You know, the white paper is great, like not commenting on the, on the technology at all. But it, I mean, if you screw up the lending ecosystem, which isn't advanced, right? Like they're making basic mistakes that, you know, banks made in like the 1920s. If we allow this lending ecosystem to continue, like people are going to be for sellers of Bitcoin. I, I think the, the Bitcoin people should be super concerned about this. Um, there's a, a lot of speculation obviously happening. There's a lot of dumb lending decisions happening. Uh, so I, I, like if you hold gold, to, to bring it back to gold, like you don't have to worry about any of these things with gold. Um, it's been around for so long. Like 
there's very fixed um, practices and best practices around lending and how much gold you can you can have uh, and margin loans you can take out against it. So it's like I don't that doesn't keep me up at night at all on gold. I mean, obviously, I don't know what the price is going to do, but like, yeah, you mentioned you have companies trading at 10 times earnings in, in the minor sector. It's like, I'm fine to hold that. Um, and I, I do think it's a decent inflation hedge. It's proved it to be that way for, you know, hundreds of years. Um, so just one of the reasons I'm going to continue to be long gold over crypto. Uh, I hold a very modest amount of crypto, but like, again, I'm, I'm very concerned about this speculation and the lending stuff. We're not even going to get into the Dogecoin whatever coin stuff, which is pure speculation. So I'm, I'm worried about the crypto space it, it, for reasons that honestly have nothing to do with uh, crypto itself. It, it has to do with, totally with companies that are popping up to try to profit off crypto lending. So th- that's my two cents there. I'm with you on the gold long trade. And for anyone who holds crypto, I would 100% pay attention to this because I think this could be a huge story in the next couple of months. I think one of these companies is 100% going to blow up. Um, this is what happens when you get yourself into bad leverage situations. And, you know, just to piggyback on that, I appreciate the very nuanced view there about, you know, like the futures term structure and everything else with, with crypto. But I, I feel like the the risk there is is a lot simpler and dumber in just that so much of the volume comes from these leverage trades. I mean, through the derivative products on, you know, different uh, brokerages like Binance, or exchanges, you can very easily trade with 125x leverage on Bitcoin. And so knowing that a significant amount of the volume and holdings probably at this point are heavily leveraged, you know, the the amount of volatility that is just guaranteed in in Bitcoin is is massive. And you know, again, when we see any any type of drawdown, it very quickly turns into what looks like a stop run, just deep, deep red candle. Uh, in some of these 10% down days, you know, if, if you're looking at staking or any of these other strategies, to your point, nothing is a sure thing. And we don't have nearly enough uh, history on this particular asset to really understand, you know, looking out, whether it's, you know, one quarter or two quarters, how to properly quantify what that risk structure or risk profile is. So to, to use some of those more advanced derivatives or trading strategies around Bitcoin, I feel like is a little nearsighted in a way that thousands of years of history on gold definitely speaks to you know, how you can more accurately model risk moving forward in a way that you never could with crypto. And in a lot of these names too, it's I hear I hear Bitcoin referred to as an inflation hedge. But when something has gone up five or six x in a year and is heavily inflated, you are not hedging against inflation. You are basically riding the wave of inflation. So you get no benefit here, you know, if if this deflationary long term trend does play out. And also, if we do continue to see inflation, you know, that's already manifested itself in the price of Bitcoin. A lot of large numbers. If you weren't in last summer when it's trading around ten k, you aren't going to be getting rich by. Bitcoin at, at 50K buying this dip, which sidebar, there's so many people that I thought were all in Bitcoin or crypto that are buying these dips. So either either you're full of crap and you've cashed on the sidelines or you didn't actually have a position to begin with, or I don't know, maybe you just bought low and then or sold low and then bought slightly higher. Um, but either way, I don't think that there is a very nuanced plan or view for you know how how this March higher continues. But the, the risk there is immense and they keep finding new ways to add additional risk and additional uh, fragility to sort of um, the structure of the crypto market. So I'm still on crypto, still have you know crypto in my portfolio, but I, I'm not nearly as bullish about crypto as, as gold for, for all of the reasons that, that you listed there.
Yeah, I'm glad we're in agreement. And I look for, I mean, if slash when something does happen to any of these crypto exchanges, uh, very excited to talk about it on the pod. Because I would also say like, shame on the regulators for not doing anything about this. To, to me, this is just as bad as SPACs, where it's like, finally, the SEC came down on the SPACs and was like, you, you know, you're going to put out three year guidance that has no basis in reality. We're going to audit it and we will, will you know, we'll intervene if need be. So the SEC put out a formal statement on this. You're seeing SPAC issuance come to a screeching halt in part because of that. To me, like the crypto stuff is arguably worse, right? <laughs> like, you know, you have these insane, you, you allow these uh, retail traders and I think also hedge funds to lever up um, when like the volatility asset is, is massive. Um, so Anyways, it, it concerns me. I think uh, I don't know how big a crisis it will be when it does happen, but there's definitely a, a pending crisis, in my opinion, in, in that space. Um, moving from like pure speculation to actual oh, companies with quick, actual earnings. Go ahead. Yeah. Since, since you did mention SPACs, um, I think one of the the funny sort of symptoms of you know this rotation out of extreme growth and a lot of the you know really hot names of late 2020 early 2021 into value energy other spaces is that despite the spac boom uh and you know the recent sort of uh you know taking the wind out of the sails by the sec i think there is actually surprisingly enough a great opportunity to find some value in the spac space because so many of these names have been so beaten down something we talked about a little bit yesterday is that there are a number of SPACs you can find that are trading below NAV, which is kind of insane to think that they went from being so overpriced, so overvalued, so frothy to now actually representing some, some significant value. I mean, uh, Shamath and the Shamath uh, SPACs have been sort of definitely in the crosshairs as an example of you know what's wrong with the space him just flooding you know the market with different um spec names trying to obviously capitalize on it even though he's claiming i'm changing the world or whatever else but they're you know with with a a sort of nuanced view looking at you know how some of these specs are priced relative to nav i do think there is actually a significant opportunity here to just you know put a little uh, stake yourself a little position in some of these that are trading below you know, maybe that $10 strike typically where it's, you know, at NAV and just sit there, wait for some type of acquisition. So the strategy hasn't changed, but finally price is at a point where I think you can justify just sort of taking a position in some of these. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have a spec name or any to throw at you off the top of my head, but, you know, just look around and see what is trading below NAV. And I think there is a great trade there, just sort of taking a position and waiting, knowing that as soon as they announce an acquisition, there will be that, that requisite pop. Um, even if they aren't, you know, as subject to sort of news and speculation as they may have been, that trade is still there. So, you know, no, no sense sort of turning your nose up at SPACs, even though they've fallen out of favor. This is actually probably the time to buy. I, I think for sure it could become kind of that Joel, Joel Greenblatt uh, spinoff story where like, you know, his long thesis on spinoffs has always been, what is a spinoff, right? It's a company taking a, a division and making it an, another public equity and like you'll often get shares if you own the company of the spinoff and those investors are like, I don't even know what this thing is. I'm just selling it. Uh, like don't want to own it. And as a result, you can find a lot of value in spinoffs. I, I think for SPACs, like it, if people may go, oh, you know, that's trash. You know, that was the 2020 bubble. But what's really going to happen, you know, I agree with you is like because there's more regulation now and because you're forced to put out financials that are actually realistic, I think the quality of SPAC acquisitions is going to be way better I think you're going to see them trade under NAV, just like you said. And if you find something where you like the balance sheet, you think the cash flow potential is good, you like the managers, like I think no harm in buying it. 
Um, you know, obviously the SPAC economics, like with the warrants, I think there's, there's still some issues there. Um, but they're a way better investment on the whole now than they were last year, but that's not saying much. But before we leave SPACs, I, I do think it is, is very fitting and poetic that WeWork will be coming to market through a SPAC. So I think that is everything that's wrong with SPACs and everything that's wrong with the market tied up with a nice bow. Yeah, I haven't looked at WeWork. I mean, I, I have to imagine it's going to be a better value buy than it was in the failed IPO. But uh, who knows? Maybe we'll cover I'm, that I'm on a future episode. Definitely long raising the consciousness of, of humanity. I heard there's a good, I haven't seen it, but I heard there is a good documentary on Netflix about uh, the rise and fall of WeWork, which may be a good transition to actually talking about Netflix in this upcoming earnings season. So you had in your notes, uh, you know, Netflix strangely announcing buybacks. I mean, this is, it was a growth story that now is going to a value story. Uh, really interesting to see them using their cash to buy back stock. Uh, they had a miss on subscriber growth, stock plummeted. Uh, now we have all FANG uh, reporting earnings this week. Um so what are your thoughts on Netflix and also the week ahead for earnings? Yeah, so it's it's kind of nice to settle into something that resembles business as usual, looking at uh, you know earnings reports as being sort of a key driver for price in a way that they maybe hadn't been the last couple of quarters with some more dominant trends, whether that be movement of rates uh, or all the short squeezes that were going on right around the time of earnings. But next week is... Uh, interestingly enough, kind of snuck up on us, probably the biggest week for tech earnings with Apple, Tesla, AMD, Amazon, Microsoft, and Facebook, as well as a number of other uh, very large mega cap names reporting. And so, you know, before getting into spotlights on those, um, you know, talking about VIX earlier with with VIX being at sort of, uh, you know, an intra-year low here, I, I still think the risk for some type of volatility event um, you know, just a spike, maybe even like a 50%, some type of insane move in a single day for VIX uh, is still, you know, a risk that's out there. And we've talked about a number of different catalysts, whether it be for uh, a rug pull or a laydown that have all sort of come and gone. Um, some of those being COVID cases, you know, this Indian variant sort of making its way into the news. There's a number of geopolitical uh, issues, whether that's between uh, China and Taiwan or Russia and Ukraine, none of which seem to move the market. Um, we did see a little movement on Thursday with Biden announcing that potential capital gains tax, but that was easily bought up the next day and still hit a new all time high. But, you know, I think one potential catalyst, something that has material impact on valuations and pricing are these earnings. So, you know, the expectations going into next week are sky high with all of the uh, you know consumer reporting that we've seen. Um, the expectation is that all these big tech names that have been posting a string of just blowout earnings are going to continue doing that. Um, but while we saw some insane price action after hours last summer, um, especially, you know, I think it was either last August or July when both Apple and Tesla announced splits on huge beats uh, and the market just, you know, absolutely ripped for a day. We've seen pretty muted price action, especially last quarter, you know, despite very good earnings, Apple falling off of its all time high, basically following its reporting last quarter. And so really the the trend and emphasis moved away from, you know, earnings and revenue. In fact, the, the market seems pretty ambivalent to big earnings and revenue beats. Um, and all of the focus has moved almost exclusively to guidance. You know, will guidance be offered? Pulling guidance seems like a, a death knell 
uh, for your pricing, no matter how good your previous quarter was. Um, and as sort of a preview of this upcoming week, I think we look no further than the Netflix uh, earnings report last week. Uh, Netflix, a big COVID defensive stock, definitely had a major tailwind from sort of the stay at home uh, paradigm shift of last year, you know, has really been struggling to maintain that trend. And so I think we we see, you know, that the COVID uh, trade sort of reaching a, a natural zenith um, with that Netflix earnings. So they posted a very strong beat on earnings and revenue and even announced a $5 billion share buyback program. Um, but a miss on the global paid subscriber number and some lackluster guidance sent the shares tumbling as much as 11% after hours. So in case you were wondering how much risk there is, despite these high expectations, I, I think that, you know, that massive, massive move on Netflix is the type of risk that you have here in a lot of these names. And one thing I'll point out, you know, Tesla, who you know had uh, some some pretty high consequences on their the previous earnings, needing to get that four straight quarters of profitability to get an S and P five hundred. Um, you know they've gotten there, they've been included, and on Friday, interestingly enough, we saw the biggest day for dark pool volume all time on Tesla. It's kind of amazing to to think, considering all the crazy moves and crazy sort of event based trades around Tesla that Friday, where we saw about one point six seven billion in notional value of shares trans acted on the dark pool um, around a price of 728 typically means that there's going to be some very volatile price action to follow um, so despite you know a, a pretty bullish damn near insane uh, price target from Kathy Wood the biggest stand for Tesla uh, I think it's it's undeniable the amount of headwinds especially with some you know very very negative news coming out of China it seems like the um, overall you know feeling towards Elon Musk in China, a key market for them for growth uh, has turned significantly with uh, reports that Teslas are being pulled off the highway, not allowed to park in certain parking lots. And just overall, uh, the CCP is basically demanding that that Musk kiss the ring. So all that being said, and considering Tesla's failed to make a new higher high since that all-time high around 900 earlier this year. Uh, I think there is a good chance that we see tech and especially these big names really take a beating next week if they aren't able to post guidance that isn't just, you know, better, uh, but, you know, just sparkling absolutely no type of, of, you know, risk or downside potential to be seen because, again, with expectations this high, I don't think there is any room for for a, a potential, you know, we're, we're not expecting a miss, but anything other than the best earnings, again, following a year of the best all time earnings. So I don't really see any of these names really being able to post anything, you know, that could pump them significantly upwards after hours. You know, I think the best you could hope for is sort of a, a theta killing, very muted uh, price action after hours. But um, the downside risk is is pretty immense with a lot of these names trading close to or at all time highs, particularly Microsoft and Facebook uh, to name two. But, you know, I would look no further than Tesla reporting on Monday to get, you know, yet another taste for what sort of the sentiment will be towards these tech earnings. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Expectations are crazy high. I mean, the only thing I, I would probably say arguing against why they can't go higher um, or arguing for why they can't go higher. Sorry, been a long podcast. Um, the thing is like, all these stocks aren't created equal in terms of expectations, right? Like Tesla's expectations relative to the cash flow it produces is, is insane. You know, I, I don't even know what it trades at as a multiple to earnings, but it doesn't have, it, it, this is not a software business. This is a high fixed cost business, um, high CapEx, you know, Tesla is, is a much 
more difficult. I mean, it has to put cash into the business to keep growing. That's very different from something like Apple, where it produces you know eighty billion dollars of free cash flow and only seven billion of capex. Apple's still like a little rich at thirty-five times earnings. Like I don't know if they can really hold up there. But you look at something like Facebook. I think after cash, Facebook is like teens at this point. Um, Google, I talked about that earlier. Like I, I think Google's a huge growth story, and I, I think at twenty times earnings, it's a little, it's cheap. Um, Microsoft haven't done as much work on. But I guess my point here is like all these a lot of the companies in FANG are growing the top line at like 20 to 30%. And in some cases, growing earnings equally as fast. Um, they have great return on equity businesses. You know, this is software again. So like huge operating leverage, you build the product, you scale it up, um, it works. So, I mean, I think FANG, like there's, the valuations don't scare me and I'm not afraid of continuing to get in if there if there is a drawdown. Um, uh, on a kind of separate note, one thing I would say about the Netflix miss here is it's crazy to me they're buying back stock when pretty much all the you know, quote thought leaders on Twitter and other places basically said, you know, this streaming war will continue for you know decades into the future and Netflix is the innovator and they're going to be in video games. They're going to be in uh, you know every form of media. So it's like, if that's true, why aren't they reinvesting all the cash flow into the business? Why are they buying back stock? Um and I will use this to parlay the whole idea into my movie thesis. Yeah, you know, it's like if this if the most dominant streaming platform in the world can't find a good use of cash, yet like you're seeing spending on movies go up. Like Warner spent a ton of ad dollars to to pump up Mortal Kombat. Same with Godzilla versus Kong. So what I, what I'm seeing is money is going into theatrical releases, and it's not going into streaming. At least if you, if you look at the most recent Netflix earnings. Um, so it makes me continually bullish on, on movies, whenever, which everybody said streaming was going to destroy. Uh, so I just think it's it's interesting. It's like, why would Netflix buy back cash? It, have, have they just decided that they're good with their content spending? Uh, so something something to chew on. Um, but going into earnings, I, I think, it, as you said, really tough year to laugh. Like 2020 was such a blowout for so many of these companies. Um, but Fang, I think, actually presents some of the best value in the market. So the valuations keep me interested. I think if like, for instance, if you saw Facebook draw down 20%, you know, to me, now we're getting under to 10 times earnings for a business growing super fast. So that would excite me. Uh, but I'm, I'm interested. I will also throw out two other names reporting. IMAX is reporting on Friday. So a good chance to see what they're saying about the movie industry. Um, that's a name I own and I'm very bullish on. Um, then also Crocs, uh, you know, the world's most beloved shoe brand is reporting on Tuesday. This is on the heels of Skechers reporting on Friday. Um, Skechers, I will say, had a blowout quarter. They they destroyed estimates. Stock was up 16% after hours, um, or excuse me, during the day. But a little on uh, Skechers quarter. So, I mean, they were 18% growth on the direct-to-consumer business, 15% on revenue overall, uh, $1.4 billion in revenue for the quarter, and I think expectations of like $1.2. Um, so, and, and they hold like a billion in cash. So uh, as a value stock, I, I still think this is a really nice name with some optionality going forward. Um, it all depends, I suppose, if you believe this quarter was driven by stimulus checks and people just going, what do I do except buy Skechers? Um, but again, like interested to see how Crocs follows up. It seems like they should do pretty well. Skechers did that well. Um, so two names I'm looking at, but you know, TLDR still continue to like Fang and I'm still long, uh, Crocs and IMAX. Yeah. And before we, uh, take this home, uh, with, with, uh, an update on our, our Q's versus Berkshire bet, um, 
I, I know you've got your your horses hitched to the the movie theaters, and you love that trade. I might not be as bullish on on the theaters themselves. Um, I do think that there is a great reopening opportunity to be found in brick and mortar retail. Another boots on the ground take. Uh, shopping areas seem pretty packed. Um, people are out and about. You know whether it's because of the vaccine shots or just sick of being cooped up. I think there is uh, some some great trades to be found, particularly in that retail space. Um, so a couple names I'm watching like TJ Maxx, TJX chart looks great for a breakout uh, above new all time highs. Uh, Tanger Factory Outlets SKT that was one of those heavily shorted names also looking prime for a breakout. So I think there's definitely some spots um, in this reopening trade to still you know find some more upside or areas that haven't you know run up way past where they should and that's definitely in in the brick and mortar retail space. Um, people will be out shopping and there is, you know, a lot of consumer spending. Um, so these, these are areas where I do see, see some upside without, you know, nearly the same, same headwinds. You know, I'm not as bullish in, in movie theaters. I still think that, you know, everything that's coming out is garbage. I don't think that you can really beat crudes too, in terms of overall quality and, and cinematic sort of, uh, mastery, but um people are gonna be buying shoes people are gonna be buying uh their spring summer wardrobes and uh looking fresh to get out and see all their friends this summer uh or even getting back to the office you know i actually have to put on a shirt for once um so you know i'd be looking to get some exposure whether that's you know some some short-term option swing plays here um in in that retail space yeah makes sense um I, th- I actually live right near TJ Maxx and it's, it's always pretty full, full whenever I go in. So I'm with you on the retail thesis. Um, yeah, let's get to our Berkshire versus uh, NASDAQ 100 bet because I think this is, we made this uh, May 1st and it's crazy. It's been a year since then and, and what a year it's been. But to, to give the listeners the recap, so on May 1st, uh, Berkshire Hathaway was trading at 182.67 as of Friday, closed at 271.98. That's good for a 49% return. NASDAQ 100 212.74 as of May 1st, 2020, and then closed at 339.42 um, this past week. So up almost 60%. So it will take a significant uh, comeback in this final week. It looks like you're going to wind up with $100 in your pocket. Um, I will say, and I mentioned this to you offline, but I want listeners to know Berkshire does pay a significant dividend. So we have not factored dividends into the total return. That may get me up a couple points, but we shall see what happens. Another quick comment too is the market is actually up 47.4% over that time period. So Berkshire barely outperformed the market. Um, the the Qs outperformed a lot. So overall, like you know, because I had my money in Berkshire during this bet, uh, you know, not not that sad to lose a hundred bucks. Um, but congratulations on your victory. I mean, te- what a monster tech has been. And you know, we gotta start. Uh, we gotta start thinking about a new bet for 2021. Uh, listeners, if you have bets you're interested in seeing. Um, and want us to take one or the other side, let us know because uh, we do need a bet to replace it. Yeah, and we'll, we'll discuss. At first of all, I thought this this was uh, a fantastic bet, perfect sort of illustration of, I think, what we were hoping to get out of this, which is a demonstration of, you know, whether value can outperform, you know, tech considering our starting point of tech still being, you know, pretty highly valued there and uh, value looking like dog crap at the time. Um, a lot of that, you know, this is classic tortoise and hare. A lot of that that uh, lead was made in the first couple months of this bet. And really, the the cues have been holding on for dear life while 
uh, value in the Berkshire companies that have been coming on strong this year. So I'm glad that uh, it comes down to a, a uh, photo finish here just to you know keep keep things exciting and we'll we'll figure out whether you factor in dividends as long as I win either way um, so we'll we'll figure that out but you know preview I think a nice bet for the year ahead starting today or May 1st or whenever we want to do it is which will perform better in the ensuing year gold or Bitcoin and I don't know if we'll be on either sides of that trade but I think that will be an interesting one to watch for the next year yeah it'd be funny if we we force me to take on Bitcoin just so I could be in the torture chamber of having to be a Bitcoin bull on this podcast. Um, but I think that might be a fun one to do. I'm definitely on board for that. But maybe we can make you, you be on the Bitcoin side and I can take the gold side. I, I might need to take the Bitcoin side just to inverse myself because I think the number of times I said that I was short uh, NASDAQ on this podcast, despite taking that bet, uh, was far more than the number of times I said I, I think the outlook is bullish, even though you know it turned out to be the right place. So we'll figure that one out for the next show and, and recap some of the other bets we did as well. But uh, glad to at least you know take a, a resounding lead in the all-time bet space here. For sure. All right, buddy. As always, it's been an honor and a pleasure. Uh, any closing words for the listeners? Uh, weed stocks. I know that you'll have some thoughts oh, there. Yeah. You coming up. So, hey, 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 smoke weed every day. <laughs> yeah, be on the lookout. I actually have a real cannabis thesis um, that has gathered steam over time. I have been researching the space. Um, so, yeah, send me your thoughts on your favorite cannabis stocks. And Sean and I will talk about them in the future. All right, buddy. Better. Until then, though, happy trading, brother. Happy trading. Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes of Stock Talking and read a blog with my latest trade recommendations, market commentary, and more, visit postcoronastocks.com.